When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. It's Stangy Law Firm. We represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by the official Star Trek Starships Collection. Get the Enterprise D for only $4.95 when you sign up today at st-starships.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 215, Iborg. Welcome into Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Ken Ray. And I'm John Champion. Each week, we watch an episode of Star Trek, pulling it from the collective, examining it for its individual value, then tossing it back into the collective and seeing how it holds up. This week, I Borg, the one where the Enterprise pulls a Borg from the collective, examines it for its individual value, then tosses it back into the collective, hoping for the best. John's got trivia in a moment, but first, a few words about a bunch of starships flying at you month after month after month as part of the official Star Trek Starships Collection. Here's what that is. You subscribe to the official Star Trek Starships Collection, and you get two ships a month from the original series through the Kelvin timeline and beyond. It's not just the ships you get, though. You also get a magazine filled with production notes, design notes, and in-universe information about the ship. Plus, you get a digital download of the magazine, which not only gives you access to even more information online, it lets you keep the physical magazine as close to new as possible. And you get all of that for 20 bucks per ship. It's two ships a month, two magazines a month, two digital magazines a month, 40 bucks a month. Plus, you get extra surprises the longer you stay subscribed. And you can start your subscription with an amazing deal. Get the Enterprise 1701D, conveyor of such Borg as Locutus, Hugh, and who knows? Maybe one day some disturbingly attractive Borg queen that makes you wonder all sorts of things about yourself. You get the Enterprise D and its accompanying magazine for $4.95 to try out. The address to do that is st-starships.com slash mission log, st-starships.com slash mission log. Trying it out not only supports this show, it makes you the commander of your own personal armada. That address again is st-starships.com slash mission log. And a big thanks to Eagle Moss for sponsoring this week's show. Hey, I think I I said earlier, I believe I said earlier that John's got trivia coming up in just a moment. But before we do that, I want to let you know how to get in touch with we. I'm sorry, me. Us? I don't know. Depends on how the show goes. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, really? Is this my audition? (laughs) Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, we would love to hear your voice. 323-522-5641 is the phone number to call. 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our show website, including discovered documents, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And please do remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. And with that, 
we go to, uh, well, I mean, it's such a light episode. I guess it's all trivia, really, but uh, but let's do, a, let's do trivia for iBorg. What do you say, John? You got it. iBorg was written by Rene Echeverria. Now, we know that Rene submitted his first next-gen script on spec. That was The Offspring in Season 3, and he was so good that they wanted to keep him around. He came up with this show after demand for more Borg stories, but the problem in front of the writers and producers was pretty apparent. What do you do when you have already established that the enemy is a massive, unstoppable force? It'd be very difficult and very expensive to outdo what we've already seen. Renee's script was a way to bring back the Borg, but flip it on its head. Jerry Taylor also polished the script. She had an uncredited uh, contribution here. And she said that it meant, quote, we can never treat the Borg the same way again. And um, I'm going to save Michael Pillar's comments for the end of the show. I think it's a good way to kind of wrap this one up. Now, of course, the title is a riff on iRobot, and that was a riff on iClaudius, although the title of this episode technically doesn't have a comma in it. I don't know if you noticed that in the opening credits, but they they don't actually have Mm -hmm. the comma. And yeah, so it kind of depends on where you find it. It was written in on the scripts. It was written in in some of the books that came after, but on screen, which is typically what we go by here, no comma. So maybe you just say it all as one, you know, iBorg. There you go. Exactly. New from <laughs> Apple in 2019. Right. Actually, no, it'd actually be Apple Borg now because they've changed that. But that's yeah, drop the I. Just yeah. Mm-hmm. The episode was directed by Robert Liederman, and that's a relatively new name for us on this show. But Robert has deep Star Trek roots. He actually started out as an editor during season two. He even won an Emmy for his editing work on the episode Deja Q. Now, this was the first of his two only directing credits, both on Next Gen. Don't feel bad for him, though. Robert continued to work as an editor on Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, and Enterprise, and he even wrote episodes of Deep Space Nine and Voyager. His name was already immortalized as a captain of the colony ship in Up the Long Ladder. So he has been around (laughs) for quite a while on Next Gen. Ken, we got double 47s in this episode. I don't know if you noticed it, but that uh, topological anomaly, the graphic that Data and Jordy come up with, it is labeled as 4747. When one isn't enough, Hmm. you put in two 47s. (laughs) You can never have too much 47, apparently. nope, Nope, you can't. And you may have noticed in this episode that that Borg makeup keeps evolving, you know, thanks to Michael Westmore. Um, In this one, we have a new hologram eyepiece, which is given some prominence in the episode, and a couple of blue LED lights, which were pretty new and quite rare at the time. And this is also the first time that we have a name or designation for the Borg. We actually narrow it down for this individual. And let's see, we also have a new fish for Picard. It was before a red firefish. Now it's a lionfish. And I guess, you know, Captain's prerogative. He can just keep replicating them until he gets one that he likes. And uh, let's see, in terms of props, Geordi uses a tool that was already used by Sulu. Remember that moment in Star Trek Three when Sulu blasts that, uh, that console in the, uh, in the brig? And he uses like a little light-up thing. Well, Geordi is using that to examine third of five in this episode and speaking of third of five guest stars that brings us to jonathan del arco now jonathan turned 26 during production of this episode he was born in uruguay and one of the earliest professional credits for him was a guest role on miami vice that was in 1987 
So probably pretty soon after he had auditioned for the role of Wesley Crusher on some newfangled sci-fi show. I guess he didn't get that role. Now, follows that up with appearances on Sisters, his Mambo Kings, A Wonder Years. He landed this episode of Next Gen and later had recurring roles on Boy Meets World, The Closer, and more. Now, uh, a note about his audition for this episode. It's pretty well documented. He said in interviews that when he went into audition for the role of Hugh, that um, he very specifically was antisocial with the other actors and producers and people around him. He really wanted to get into that kind of mindset of being this uh, detached character. And the other thing that I found very interesting is he said the voice for Hugh that he tried to, to use for the audition and developed for the production of the show he, he was actually referencing uh, a childhood friend of his who had died young, and he said he was trying to capture that sort of innocence and wonder that he heard in his friend's voice. So in that, this performance is a, a little bit of a tribute to that friend of his. Now, Jonathan will come back, as will Hugh, in one more episode of Next Gen, and then he's back as another character in Voyager. There is no I in team, and there is no comma in iBorg. Prologue. Just roaming around the Argolis system, the Enterprise is looking for new places colonists could one day inhabit. Strangely, there's a communication signal coming from the moon of the fourth planet, a moon which can support life. Riker assembles an away team, and what they find on the surface is the wreckage of a ship. Dr. Crusher finds that there is one weak life sign, though, and it's Borg. Act 1. Borg? Ew! Leave him there! Let him die! Let's get out of here! At least that's what Picard is thinking, and Riker is right there with him, and pretty much everybody else. But Beverly is way more concerned as a doctor that she has a patient who desperately needs help. Without her, he will die. Picard acquiesces, and the survivor is beamed aboard to a detention cell, where at least his ability to communicate with the collective will be cut off while Beverly treats him. Deanna has been listening into all of this, and she steps into Picard's ready room to let him know that he might be affected in all of this by his experience with the Borg. What? Why, why would you say that? That's such a, a funny thing to say. I mean, I mean, is it me, or is it her? It's, it's her, right? Well... Just so he knows, he's got someone to talk to in case he needs it. In the detention cell, Beverly is working on the Borg as best she can, but there's a lot of damage. She might have to remove some of his neural implants, which Picard points out would kill him. Luckily, Geordi might be able to create some replacement parts that would do the job, and that gives Picard an idea. As long as Geordi is messing around with Borg technology and programming, why not introduce a computer virus that could infect all Borg systems when he's returned to the collective? You know, something that would literally wipe out every Borg from catastrophic failure of their essential technology? Sure. Great idea. Act 2. At a staff meeting, Beverly is the one to raise her hand and ask, Is that really such a good idea? I mean, the Borg are a major threat and everything, but just so we're all on the same page here, we're talking about genocide. Yep, we sure are, says Picard. Okay, meeting adjourned. 
back in the detention cell, the Borg is looking for ways to communicate with the collective, but nothing's going to work for him with the shielding in place. He also needs to eat. Well, not eat like throwing back some tasty cakes, but he needs energy, which will allow his implants to synthesize the nutrients that can keep him alive. Jordy can rig up a power strip, good for charging a Borg, a cell phone, and an iPad all at the same time. Beverly says the Borg actually kind of looks scared. Picard and Guinan are having a drink in 10 forward. No, no, wait, wait, scratch that. They are fencing. Picard scores against Guinan, and when they stop to rest for a moment, Guinan expresses her concern about the guest they've brought on board, noting that Picard, of all people, should know how this could lead to big trouble. But he assures her this was done for humanitarian reasons. Back to the game. Picard is besting Guinan with the foil, and she recoils in pain after one touch, but when Picard goes to check on her, Guinan bounces back, knocking the foil from his hand and winning the match. See? He felt sorry for her and let his guard down. Jordy is ready to connect the power tap in the Borg's detention cell. In he walks with Worf for protection, and the Borg approaches him with a familiar old refrain— we are Borg, you will be assimilated. Everybody now, resistance is futile. Jordy is like, yeah, 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 not today, okay? And by the way, do you have a name? Not so much, but the Borg is designated as third of five, as in five crew members on his ship. And now time to eat. Third of five plugs in, and he must be feeling better already because instead of saying thank you, he's ready for a more robust rendition of the old classic, you will be assimilated. Act 3. To dig a little deeper into how the Borg work, Geordi has been giving their guest some perceptual tests. When the Borg cooperates, he gets more energy. When he doesn't, he doesn't. Beverly is a reluctant assistant, and they beam in third of five for a closer look in the same equipment that they used to study Picard when he was Locutus. At one point, third of five asks them if they have designations. They don't. They have names. Geordi, Beverly... The Borg wants to know if he has a name, and when he stumbles on the word you, Geordi calls him Hugh. You know, like Grant, Jackman, Downs, or Hefner. The tests are running smoothly. In fact, Hugh is acing everything. He has a prosthetic eye, which is definitely giving him an advantage, and he's sporting enough to pull it right off so Geordi can give it a closer look. In fact, Hugh lets them know that they'll have their very own prosthetic eyepieces when they are assimilated— Lucky you. Beverly tries to correct him again. They don't want to be assimilated. That's not the way they choose to live. But it's so awesome, you guys, Hugh tries to explain. You have all the voices of all the other Borg in your head all the time. How can humans even live without all those voices all the time? Must be quiet. Must be lonely. And Beverly gets it, that Hugh is lonely. He wonders what will happen to him when his time on the Enterprise is over, and Beverly says he'll go back to the Collective. In 10 Forward, Geordi expresses some second thoughts. He's gotten to know Hugh somewhat, and maybe it's not entirely right to implant a deadly computer virus into him. Guinan stops him right there. Hugh's not a person, not some lost kid. He's part of a single-minded species that will do everything to erase humanity in the name of assimilation. Jordy says there's more to him, and Guinan should meet him to see for herself. And not to rush anyone along, but Data informs Picard and Riker that there is a cubicle vessel, you know, Borg, on its way to where they are. Expect an intercept in about 30 hours. 
Act 4. Taking Jordy's advice, Guinan meets Hugh. She starts out tough. The Borg destroyed most of her people, and there are only a few survivors, but they did survive. Resistance is not always futile. Hugh understands her, though. Without her people, Guinan must be lonely, just as he is. Jordy continues to examine Hugh, and Hugh wants to understand why. When the Borg want to know about something or someone other than themselves, they just assimilate it. Jordy reminds him that they aren't Borg. They are individuals, and part of what they do is study others to understand them. Hugh is having some difficulty with the idea of individuality. Instead of we, it's I. And how can Jordy possibly sleep at night without hearing all the thoughts of those around him? And what about loneliness? Jordy says that's why they have friends, to be there for each other, to make them feel better. Then Hugh recognizes that's what they are. Jordy is Hugh's friend. Jordy and Data reveal their clever plan to Picard. They've come up with a geometric structure that is a paradox. It can't exist. And when it's downloaded to Hugh, then he downloads it to the rest of the Borg. They will spend a lot of time trying to work out an answer. All those attempts at answers will link up with each other, essentially grinding them to a halt. Great plan. Except that Jordy is having second thoughts about the whole thing since he has gotten to know Hugh. Picard reminds him that he was merely a laboratory animal, therefore experimentation, and Geordi should lose his personal attachment to him. Guinan goes for a visit to Picard's quarters. He looks like he's ready for the kind of evening he told Kamala about, falling asleep with a book in his hands, but Guinan is troubled by her meeting with Hugh. He's a living being who is scared and lonely. She wants Picard to convince her that his plan of total destruction of the Borg is the right thing to do. She's taking the time to talk to him. He hasn't. Guinan sees Hugh as a person. Picard sees it as a thing. At the very least, she says, he should look Hugh in the eye before sending him back to wipe out his entire race. To his credit, Picard does, one-on-one, in his ready room. Hugh recognizes Picard as Locutus, which Picard doesn't deny. In fact, he uses this as an advantage, interrogating Hugh about his designation. When Picard as Locutus tells Hugh that their mission is to assimilate the Enterprise and its crew, Hugh refuses. The crew do not want to be assimilated. Geordi does not want to be assimilated, and Geordi is a friend. Picard tries to strong-arm Hugh, demanding compliance, but the Borg says, I will not. Act 5. Picard admits that he was wrong. Hugh is an individual. And what would it say about them to use him as a vehicle for destroying the Borg? So they'll need alternatives. They could wipe his memory. That's totally easy. Just ask Sarjenka. Oh, oh, that's right. You can't ask Sarjenka because she doesn't remember a thing. That seems cruel, though. The Borg will probably wipe his memory, but they would have to analyze it first. Maybe, just maybe, in analyzing Hugh, the Borg will become infected, if only for a moment with his sense of individuality. It could be a profound moment. Picard says they will leave Hugh as he is and return him to the crash site, but what if he doesn't want to go back? In the ready room again, this time Picard asks Hugh what he would like. They can return him to the crash site where the Borg ship will pick him up and take him home, or he could stay with them on the Enterprise. Hugh doesn't know how to answer the question. He thinks his desires are relevant here, but Picard and Geordi insist that the choice is his and his alone. He wants to stay on the Enterprise with Geordi, but he knows that the Borg will come looking for him. 
The only option left is to return to the crash site, since that will protect his friend. In the transporter room, Beverly says goodbye, while Jordy tells Hugh there's still time to change his mind. He won't. He's decided to return, but Jordy will escort him to the moon's surface. Jordy, by himself, is of no consequence to the Borg, who will show up to retrieve Hugh. Before beaming down, Hugh tells Picard, I do not want to forget that I am Hugh. Once they beam down, Hugh takes position near where he was originally found. He and Geordi say their goodbyes, and Hugh says he will try to remember Geordi. Not too much later, and the Borg landing parties show up. The Enterprise, meanwhile, is hiding in the chromosphere of the star nearby. The Borg go about collecting modules from the dead drones, and just as they beam up to their ship, Hugh gives a last look at his friend Geordi. The end. These light comedy episodes are really starting to bother me, dude. Yeah, no, I get it. I get it. Um, I it, This is the part where we have fun with the show, and I, I kept thinking, well, I could write down all the funny comedy jokes, yeah. or I could just alternate between uh, awe for the episode and crying at uh, existential malaise. Yeah. You know, wow. whichever one it should be. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, there are a couple of things that are kind of funny. I mean, there are a couple of things that are worth pointing out, too. Yeah. Sure. So you go first. Sure, sure. <laughs> um, so, uh, all right. And uh, as we often preface, there might be things that we come back to, uh, from, you know, time and time again. Um, I, I will say that the fencing scene, it was something that I kind of ignored at first. Hmm. But it's a nice piece of foreshadowing. And, and of course, Guyna is messing with Picard's head to show how his sympathies can be manipulated. Um, but really, I'm just glad that we got to do something with Guinan other than have her intend forward with a giant hat. <laughs> you know? I'm curious, though, how he, um, and, and by the way, I assume you're going to say something about the space towel and the space kerchief that her hair is in. Oh, yeah, it was lovely. Yeah. How were you able to ignore that scene, though? I mean, it's so bonk bonk on the head. You, you know, and, and that's why, actually. It, because, okay. of course, those two actors are great together. Of mm -hmm. course they are. And it's redundant every time that we say that. And they have a much better scene later. I think the scene in Picard's quarters when Guinan comes to confront him is is a, a, just a better scene between the two of them. Yeah. Um, but there was something about this that was very bonk-bonk um, that I, I, I kind of wanted to skip it the next time I watched it. Hmm. But then I was glad that I didn't. I, I just, I, I don't know. It was one of those scenes that grew on me, even though it was so on the nose. Yeah. So, I, um, I mean, I think it's, it's a great, I, I think it's a great scene, but um, you're, you're likely to hear me say that a time or two more during this episode. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, I, I do have to say that this episode made me more curious about Hugh. Mm -hmm. Um we spend a lot of time in the episode figuring out what to do with him, um, which is all great. I mean, it, it really, I'm skipping to the end by saying there's not a wasted scene in this episode at all. Yeah. It made me more curious because I wanted to know, was Hugh human? Was he born Borg or was he assimilated later? You know, have those creepy scenes of the baby Borg. <laughs> the Borg uh, babies in season. Up from season two, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right, right. Just baby Borg in a drawer on a Borg ship somewhere. <laughs> but I wanted to know more about Hugh. I wanted to know if we knew some background about him. And I guess we don't really have to, but 
I'm just throwing it out there that it, it made me want to know more. And, and I'm glad to know that we will have Hugh coming back. I got to say, I think it's probably good that we don't know anything about him because we just start with him being the faceless enemy and we end up with him being an individual. I mean, if we because if we knew anything about his backstory, if he was just born Borg, then maybe that makes it easier for us to say, OK, well, then screw him. Or, you know, oh, but he's from a planet of, like, warm puppies and fields of daisies. And it's like, oh, well, I feel bad for him. So, okay, that one, but not the other. The fact that we know nothing about him, we're just sort of, like, pulling him out. Yeah, yeah. And, and realizing, oh, he's a him. He's not just he's not just this, you know, mindless drone thing. Uh, that gives us a lot more to think about. Um, yeah. <laughs> there, were, there were a couple of things that did make me laugh in this episode. Uh-huh. Not, I mean, and, and I think there was actually only one laugh, like when it happened, it made me laugh. Uh, when Hugh is in the in with uh, Beverly and, and Jordy, and he keeps saying, well, you will be assimilated. And Jordy says, yes, yeah. but before that happens, could we ask you a few questions? <laughs> I thought, well, that's just the weirdest press conference ever, isn't it? <laughs> that's just, right. Yes, I understand. Right. Thank you very much, sir. It was, it was well delivered. It was well done. And, uh, and it actually made me laugh out loud in an otherwise very serious episode. Yes. Yeah. No, I, I love that moment. It, it's nice. Jordy plays it perfectly. It's, it's a good scene. And, you know, Jordy is, is such a star of this episode. He it really gives him great things to do. And I thought at the end of this, by giving Hugh back um, and him having this deep friendship with Jordy, I thought, Maybe, wow, you know, maybe Picard is right. Maybe this is a great plan after all to return Hugh as he is. But but in the end, maybe it only really benefits Geordi. So flash forward a few <laughs> years, the Borg show up trying to assimilate every human ever, but they leave Geordi alone because he's their friend. They're like, oh, we're going to take over humanity. Oh, but but Geordi, we like that guy. Let's hang on to him. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm going to break the timeline for a second. How great mm-hmm. would that have been in First Contact, in the movie First oh, Contact? Yeah. If like mm-hmm. you know, they land on the Enterprise and they're like, yeah, they're shooting at Picard and they're shooting at Worf and every Borg comes up and hugs Jordy. <laughs> right, we missed you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's Jordy. It's my yeah. friend Jordy. Okay, yeah, where was I? Oh, right, I got to kill that guy over there. Excuse me. Yeah, if you very were, different please, movie. Please, friend Jordy. Yeah. Um, there was the the other thing that made me laugh, and it was only on viewing it second, third, whatever time. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't have designations because because you know Hugh is like, well, what's your designation? And and mm-hmm. Beverly says we don't have designations. Uh, says the chief medical officer within earshot of the chief engineer, who also happens to be a lieutenant commander. And I thought, well, <laughs> right. it's good that we don't have designations because that would just we just be some weird sort of structure at that point as opposed to a group of individuals doing our thing yeah that, that would be weird yeah and I, and I guess well you know you could do the math and you could say well okay if if picard's gone if Riker is gone um uh, data i think would take over the ship so so maybe uh out of the entire crew of the enterprise beverly would be like fifth out of a thousand plus maybe yeah yeah just trying to figure out where she would fall in line um Hey, did you notice at the end of the episode, there is a makeup effect. Holy cow. There's just a Borg brain yeah. exposed to the elements. Wow. <laughs> yeah. it, so it's a weird <laughs> effect, actually. I, I couldn't help but to freeze frame on that and, and look at the detail in that, that prop, that effect. Um, skin on the outside, a bunch of mechanical Borg parts underneath that, and then the brain on the inside. It was just creepy. 
Mm -hmm. It was just scary. And man, did they give you a nice big close up of that Borg brain. Deep, dark, heavy. Where is a wind answer when you need one? Almost as soon as we started Mission Log, which is over four years ago now, uh, we started talking about Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. Feels like yesterday. Uh, I know. It, 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 in many ways, it was. And yet, in actual <laughs> ways, it was not. Right. <laughs> um, we talked about Kirk, Spock, and McCoy uh, being the ethos, pathos, and logos uh, sort of ideas um, that sort of presented as, as living, breathing, walking around characters. And I know I'm mixing those up. I don't remember which one was which anymore because that was so long ago. It's crazy. No, you're close. It, 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 ethos, logos, pathos. Oh, okay. Wow. Sorry. I, I, I've already forgotten again. Don't worry about it. Okay. <laughs> um, I want to say that it was our uh, shows on the first season of Next Gen that I suggested that with a bigger cast of characters, we might get an examination of a more nuanced human in a way that, you know, with hmm. data, we get the analytical side. With Riker, we get sort of a, a certain type of masculinity. With Troy, you literally get empathy. Um, and I thought the reactions between Crusher and Worf, well, when they were on the planet and, and Worf's like, kill it, let's kill it, let's cover our tracks, let's get out of here. <laughs> and Crusher's like, let's help it. Um, I honestly thought that those, my immediate thought was that th those reactions are a little too cardboard. Hmm. But then if you look at it from the point of view of the bridge, uh, these are really voices fighting in Picard's head. Yeah. Worf's suggestion is absolutely what part of Picard wants to do. Crusher's suggestion is is what he feels he should do, and his uniform indicates what he has to do. At least if, if he's going to be, you know, Starfleet at its best. Hmm. So I mean immediately there was sort of this, oh of course, that's just Worf. That's just so Worf. But it's not really Worf. I mean, at that point, it's, I mean, I feel like in this episode, sort of the way we used to do with Kirk, Spock, and McCoy as three different sort of facets of personality. Yeah. I feel like in this episode, in a lot of ways, we are, we're sort of examining, I don't want to say one guy. I, I don't want to say one person in that we're examining Picard's reaction. I want to say we're examining one person's reaction, uh, that person being us. That person being, you know, me individually, you individually, uh, individuals in society, and how they're going to deal with um, an other. It's interesting, you know, I'm thinking now about putting the original series characters in the same exact position, and there's Kirk having to make that call, and there's McCoy arguing for compassion. Mm -hmm. McCoy would rather take care of, of the, the being, the person that is injured, no matter who they are. And Spock, Spock sometimes argued the logic of killing the enemy. Yeah. He sometimes did, you know? Enforcer Spock used to refer to him as. Enforcer Spock would. Yeah. 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 Wow. Yeah. Funny, the, the other thing that I thought about was um, I really wondered about Worf making that suggestion. Because, of course, Worf, the guy who always would reach for the phaser, even if it was totally inappropriate, mm -hmm. he would. But I wondered if arguing to kill something and hide your tracks, first of all, would that be honorable? 
And second of all, that sounds like a plan that he's had, like he's been sitting on for a while <laughs> and just waiting for the right opportunity to use it. Well, worry about Worf a little bit. I don't know that every writer actually approached it saying, okay, all of these characters are a facet of one, you know, being that being being the Enterprise or that being being the viewer. Yeah. But I mean, it's kind of interesting, actually, if you go back, if instead of looking at Worf as just sort of like, you know, the idiot who always wants to reach for a phaser mm-hmm. and look at him instead as one facet of our own personality. I mean, in every conflict, right, your your two options are fight or flight. Yeah. And and we're going to get, we're always going to get the, well, I mean, and of course, there are more subtle, uh, it's not always just fight or flight, but those tend to be two reactions. Of course, we have fight or flight or, you know, talk it out and see if it's actually <laughs> something scary and all the stuff that Star Trek always says. Yeah. But I mean, the fact that Worf always reaches for the phaser first, I mean, that's just, I mean, you could argue that that is his job to show that part of our animal brain. Right. I mean, his job. And here Worf is both fight and flight. He's saying kill it and run away. (laughs) Interesting. (laughs) So really, he's a he himself is a multifaceted portion of this multifaceted person uh, that is the viewer. So in a very complex episode, let's talk about a very complex character. uh, And that would be Picard. Uh, Picard Mm. is at first advocating for genocide. I mean, he, he is. He is. And, and his justification for it early on, he, he actually says to Beverly, well, under most circumstances, that would be unconscionable. So he's actually trying to sort of work out the justification in his head for, for how this happens. And he actually says at one point, there is no hope of negotiating peace. Now, granted, Picard knows more about the Borg than anybody because he was one for a moment. Mm-hmm. So he knows what they think, he knows their intentions, he knows how they operate. This is still a very different Picard from a few years ago. You know, I, I like to think about that Picard who was telling, I forgot who specifically he was telling, but he said, you try to negotiate, and then you try again, and then you try again, and then you keep trying mm-hmm. until you can find that compromise, you can find that negotiation. Picard's been through a lot, granted, he, he, like I said, he has a more intimate knowledge of the Borg than anybody. He went through hell. He was violated in an incredible, uh, uh, intense way by them. But clearly, this has had a profound effect on him to land us where we are with Picard now. And um, my, oh, my, that scene when he tells Jordy to detach himself from his feelings for his experiment comparing Hugh to a lab animal. It is brutal and it is cold. Um, And I actually, I also wondered at one point how this episode would have been, or, you know, as an alternate version of this, I, I wondered if they would have had the same arguments, if they would have gone through with their plan, if Hugh had not shown signs of individuality. Because I think you still have to ask yourself, if what they were proposing was an ethical plan. Let's take for a minute, let's just say that they had captured this Borg, and all he did the entire time he was on board was say, you'll be assimilated, you'll be assimilated, I'm third of five, and and that's it. That's all we ever got out of him. Mm -hmm. Is it still valid to plant this idea that would wipe out the entire species? You know, we didn't really get to argue that point in the episode because we immediately uh, uh, go into the idea of Hugh showing signs of a personality. 
Well, I don't think he actually did. I mean, he didn't show signs immediately, did he? I mean, it really, it was... Well, I mean, it, it was very close afterward, yeah. It was Beverly's humanity that that really made him human in a way, which I think is going to end up being sort of the theme of, of the show or one of the themes of the show anyway. But, I mean, it was really Beverly's humanity. I mean, she looks at him and she does not see Borg. She sees somebody who is dying. She sees him wandering around inside the cell and she says he must be hungry. I mean, and and so if he never even exhibits that personality, I mean, it's sort of like I mean, you could. I mean, you could if you take Picard's lab animal, uh, uh, lab experiment thing for a moment, or lab animal thing for a moment. I mean, there is something. Go back to Measure of a Man. I mean, there is there is something to be said for how we treat someone. I mean, regardless of how they treat us. I mean, that that sort of that's is that not actually the the, the message of a Measure of a Man? Not so much whether or not data is a living thing, but how we're going to treat this thing that may or may not be a living thing. Yeah, that, well, that, 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 is, that, that is the phrase, a measure of a man. It, it, the, the phrase is about, yeah, how we treat others. It's not about measuring up data's worth or value. Um, so, yeah, but, but I think that comes back to, to my question earlier, which is whether or not the plan is still ethical even if Hugh didn't show maybe the, the recognizable signs of personality, hmm. you know, because we still put ourselves in the position of saying, well, we have this ability, we have this power to completely wipe them out. I, I, I would go back to Kevin Uxbridge, you know, Picard said, we have no way of prosecuting you. For doing what you did, because we can't even comprehend of what you did. Now, what Kevin Uxbridge did in uh, The Survivors is he wiped out an entire race of beings, but he actually wiped them out through the entirety of history. You know, it was as if they had never even been born. So that was why Picard couldn't comprehend of it. But what you can comprehend is that Kevin Uxbridge, of his own unilateral decision, committed genocide. And we do actually have an understanding of that. We have an understanding of uh, uh, wrapping our heads around someone or, or a political force or a group trying to completely eradicate another group out of existence. So, mm-hmm. you, you know, it, it, at the very least, Picard has dealt with this on some level before. Now, I think it's fascinating that we do dig a little deeper into the Borg, and that, that's the other interesting and brilliant thing about this episode is giving some complexity to who and what the Borg are, because all we've known so far is just this sort of technological zombie army. The only personality we got of it was seeing Picard go into it and then come back out. Right. But this actually reminds us, oh, wait, these are beings. Now, for us, they're all humanoid at this point. Like I said, I think it would have been interesting. It's not necessary, but it would have been interesting to know what else about Hugh got him there. But it doesn't really matter. Um, I'm sure that maybe somebody wrote that up in a novel somewhere. And I'm sure that one of our listeners <laughs> will tell us which one it was. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, there is something very interesting about the fact, I mean, yes, Picard has been through it and he knows it as a horror. And certainly he has an idea of what the Borg, you know, want to do mm-hmm. a better idea than anybody else does. At the same time, everybody on the Enterprise knows that he went in as an individual and eventually he came out as an individual. 
I mean, it's interesting. It's interesting that Picard really has no, he has no sympathy until he actually talks to him, until Hugh does say, I. I mean, but this again kind of goes back to how willing to be done with Picard Picard is. I mean, he did not like, he did not like that version of himself. And, um, oh, why can't I remember the name of it? Uh, the one where he shows up and he's in the shuttle and, and he kills himself. Times Squared. How could I not remember the name of that one? <laughs> Picard is willing to be done with Picard when Picard is at his weakest. And what he sees all of the Borg as is, you know, weak. I mean, yes, they're an implacable foe that will take over everything. But as individuals, they're not individuals. Yeah. And certainly when he was there, he was not an individual either. I mean, it's, yeah, well, we can go into, we, we could write a whole other novel about whether <laughs> Picard would have ordered them to go back for Picard. But that's a whole other thing. Um, I think you mentioned earlier the brutality of 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 uh, some of the different arguments in this episode part of the brutality of this episode is seeing two of the most level-headed beings on the ship Guinan and Picard two of the most accepting beings on the ship when Jordy is ready to bounce lieutenant Barkley off the ship for no better reason than he's a little bit of a slacker and he doesn't like him Picard's like no come on he's here let's make him the best that he can possibly be let's make him you know something that's going to work with all of us um, Guinan and Picard are hell-bent on destroying not only the one Borg that they have on the ship, but all of the Borg. And that makes this particularly brutal. Uh, Ensign Rowe comes in and does not want to be friends with anybody, she says. And everybody's like, you know what? Give her space, because I've heard stories and I don't like her. And Guinan's the one who's like, oh, I'm going to go be her pal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah. and then when she gets like a minute with Picard, she's like, "By the way, are you stupid or something? Because you have this thing on the ship now." <laughs> right. And it's, it's. I mean, it's, 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 it's horrible mm -hmm. uh, to see these two characters do that. Um, and of course, it gives us the shot at redemption later. Yeah, and, and I think what's so interesting about that, though, is that you know, again, talking about the all of these characters representing pieces of personality. Guinan is the shiny example of compassion. In a different way than Beverly is, mm -hmm. you know, uh, because uh, like you just pointed out, I, I kept thinking of that scene, too. Guinan was the one saying that, oh, well, Roe is a little weird, misunderstood. Cool. I want to get to know her because she knows exactly what is wrong with everybody else's treatment of Roe. Mm -hmm. And it's great. It's a great scene. And it's great to have uh, uh, Guinan do that. And then with Picard, Picard is the shiny example of diplomacy. And like I said, I always remember that moment of Picard saying, you negotiate and then you do it again and then you do it again. He is all about the diplomatic compromise. And um, I think what's so fascinating about this is that you get to push these characters utterly to their limit so that for, for all of this good quality that we see in Picard, all of this good quality that we see in Guinan, where, I, I mean, maybe this is a bit of a, a nihilistic thing in the episode for the, for the audience to see. It's saying that everybody has a point, and we're going to push these characters up to that point. Mm. Granted, it, 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 the, the Borg are this just sort of unfathomable foe. How, how brutal, how uncaring and how strong they are but um we're going to take two of the most admirable people on board and make their behavior less than admirable or at least their desire less than admirable and that was not the only that was not the only absolutely brutal discussion the rules of war discussion at the beginning is brutal as well i mean the whole you know all is fair normally i would agree with you that wiping out a whole civilization is bad but 
and then you know somebody saying this is war um you know the idea that we have one set of values um in peacetime and one set of values during wartime i mean certainly there are things that and we have talked before about that yes there are times when war is necessary but how you act in war um just because you're doing something that's distasteful, just because you're doing something that, you know, in the 24th century of Star Trek, you, they would find dishonorable, uh, doesn't mean you act as a dishonorable person in a way. I mean, it, it is stupid. It is a stupid line that there are rules of war, but there are. I mean, if you come to a place where you have to actually end up standing against another group, it feels like there should still be, there should still be lines you don't cross. And it was very strange to have everybody sit around the table saying, well, yeah, normally, but, you know, these aren't normal times. So, you know, to heck with it. Um, and that's sort of it's, it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a gut wrenching thing to see that these people who are supposed to be the shining examples are like, well, yeah, usually. But and uh, of course, I mean, it's wonderful that they that they that they come back around. At least I think it's wonderful they come back around, not to skip to the end. <laughs> well, you, you have to have that moment. And and it just shows that, well, you know, really, Beverly is the, the only voice of reason at that moment. I think that's such a good scene at the conference room table with her making that argument. She makes it in a really wise way, too, which is to to simply put their words back into their mouths say, OK, I want to make sure that I understand what you're talking about. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. my understanding is we're perpetuating the genocide of an entire race. Is that right? Is that right? Okay, cool. <laughs> Just want to make sure that I, I'm on the same page with you. Um, right, because what did they say at first? Total system failure? Yeah. 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 I'm sorry. Can you can you define total system yeah. failure? Yeah, they'll all die. Okay. Yeah. I just want to make sure we're all clear that that's what we're saying. Please continue. Which is a weird piece of, you know, to see our heroic characters slip into this kind of Orwellian newspeak. No, nobody says kill. Nobody says, well, we have a plan to kill all the Borg. Right. At, at first, they're saying, well, we have this way to, uh, we're going to use a computer virus and it'll shut down their systems. And Beverly's like, no, kill. Okay, let, let's use the right word here. <laughs> you know, we, we're going to. Yeah. Well, let's use I mean, let's use a word here. I mean, and not to I'm going to be devil's advocate for a second. I mean, it is true that it would be total system failure. I mean, I think about things, too, like um, in movies and TV shows, because I've never actually ridden with a SWAT team or, you know, <laughs> been to war. But I mean, people do say the threat is neutralized. And I think one of the reasons that that term is used is because sometimes you have to neutralize a threat. And it's probably easier to neutralize a threat when you're saying, when you're not saying, I got to shoot that guy or I got to kill that guy. I mean, there's, there's, I mean, I, I, I hate, I, I cannot believe I'm actually going to say this, but I mean, I understand the purpose of double speak or new speak rather. Um, but yes, I mean, it is good that, you know, they weren't, that she didn't let them just sit there and blithely say, so we're going to neutralize this threat or, oh, so we're going to cause a total system failure. I mean, that she, again, as the doctor did have to say, we are talking about starving people and stopping them from breathing, right? And then, of course, you got to come back to the question of, well, define people, which is which seems to be the hardest thing for Picard in this episode. All right, let's talk about Hugh for a moment. Um, Hugh either, well, maybe before his experience on the Enterprise or maybe because of his experience on the Enterprise – had learned that uh, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one? <laughs> well, in fairness, the idea of the one is really like brand spanking new to him. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it was a pretty, pretty quick lesson then, I guess. It is. Yeah. Although I like the fact that... Um, I like the fact that we have, I think I accused Kirk of like the needs of the many, you know, being just as important as Kirk needs them to be yeah. <laughs> uh, a couple of weeks ago. I like yeah. the fact in this case that to be true to their principles, um, the needs of the one would actually outweigh the needs of the many in this case. Had Hugh not sacrificed himself for, you know, the good of the Enterprise, for the good of Geordi, um, yeah, Picard's like, well, all right. I guess we're going to war yeah. <laughs> to protect this one Borg against the other Borg, which, again, I mean, if we're talking about principles, if we're talking about living up to, to what you say you are or what you say you're going to be, um, that would kind of be, in that case, I guess the needs of the one would outweigh the needs of the many, because what are the many if they don't you know, stand up for the one? There's one question I did have, actually. Why not, why not program something less destructive, Hmm. Why not like program propaganda rather than destruction or, or put it a different way? Why not lead by example? Um, you know, why not? Why not run a subroutine of compassion? Hmm. Uh, is it that we I mean, is that a prime directive thing? Because not a prime directive thing, because we've already had contact with them. We're already sort of I mean, we're talking about wiping them out. I mean, it, would it change it too much or am I just getting too geeky at that point? Am I actually, no, you know, I, 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 maybe I should take that question back because I think I'm solving a problem for the writers. <laughs> I think the writers actually wrote a wonderful episode <laughs> and the problem got solved the way it should be solved. But I did, I did find myself wondering, why are we binary in this? Why are we, you know, let him go or kill him? I mean, it seems to be the only two options as, as opposed to a more nuanced, like, you know, run a subroutine of, eh, Federation's not so bad. Right. Well, I mean, th that is the hope at the end of the episode, so they sort of stumble into that resolution, mm. but they they don't actually have a program for it. They, they just hope that Hugh's individuality will at least infect, for lack of a better word, a little bit more of the board collective. I guess maybe if there had been more time, and, and of course, because it, it's a show and we gotta, we gotta end it, um, maybe Hugh could have stuck around on the Enterprise a little bit longer, and maybe he could have collaborated to find that thing, to find that bit of programming that could actually untangle the the mess of of what is the Borg, and um, and maybe give them back some individuality. So so maybe there was a compromise in there that is, as you put it, uh, a bit of propaganda that um, at the very least could, well slow down the Borg from trying to destroy everything in their path. But let's, I mean, let's, let's walk that just one more step further. Is it any more right for Hugh to decide for the entire collective uh, than it is for Picard to decide for the entire collective? Hmm. Well, yeah, that's a tough question, but I guess if we've established that Hugh has some level of free will, then Hugh could make that decision. Hugh knows the Borg. <laughs> well, Hugh, Hugh knows the Borg as well as anybody. And mm. Hugh might know that all those thousands of voices, well, they, they, they might be okay if they are set free from being part of a collective. Yeah, I don't think I like the way this story is going, and I'm glad the story didn't go that way. <laughs> <laughs> With Jordy's friend back in the collective, it is time to figure out what we can take from iBorg.
This is the part of the show where we talk about the messages, morals, and meanings of the episode and try to figure out whether the episode uh, stands the test of time as far as we're concerned. And I got to tell you, John, I was I was tempted, not because I'm lazy and not because <laughs> I didn't want to talk about this episode, but I was honestly tempted to say, why are we saying anything in this episode? Because, because I think this episode says volumes. Now, that said, we do this thing where we talk about an episode of Star Trek. <laughs> so, yeah, right. So right. here we are doing that. Um, and, and so here's the part where we do all those things I talked about a moment ago. Um, so I'll put the question to you first, sir. Does this episode hold up as far as you're concerned? You know, this is sort of the whole reason why I love doing Mission Log. And that's that I remember this episode from years ago. I remember it being the episode where mm-hmm. uh, a, a nameless Borg drone becomes a person. And and that was interesting. But then I got to watch it again and really study it and really think about the heavy, heavy questions being proposed here and chew on that for days <laughs> of, uh, leading up to our recording. Um, mm-hmm. I'll say this, you know, season five has been wildly inconsistent. There have been great highs and there have been great lows. This episode is among the highest. And and I, to me, it, it feels so much like the sort of spiritual descendant of the original series. Mm-hmm. This is its own story with its own enemy and its own look and feel, but it gets right back to the heart of what made TOS tick. And that is asking fundamental questions about who we are and who we want to be. This is the Corbin Mike maneuver all over again, but it's so worth it to tell that again. That story was relevant in 1966. This story was relevant for 1992, and it sure as hell is relevant right now. As a production, Mm -hmm. there's not one wasted scene. Everybody is at the top of their game here. Um, there's another thing that I like about this episode and the writing, it, it's efficiency. So like I said, there aren't wasted scenes, but more importantly, you know, the plot is very straightforward. We've written much longer synopses for episodes that didn't have a lot to say, but I'm glad to say that this episode has no jugglers in it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, And this is also one of the reasons that I like watching these shows in order, because we haven't been overexposed yet to the Borg. We just know them from the introduction. We know a little bit more, obviously, with Best of Both Worlds. And and now, you know, so soon after that, we get to say, okay, well, we're going to bring back the Borg, but we're going to change your perception of them at the same time. Um, So remember I said that I wanted to save what Michael Piller thought until the end because I thought it tipped the hat almost a little too much. Mm -hmm. He said that this was his favorite episode of the season. And more so, he said, quote, that it's everything I want Star Trek to be. Just when you think it's safe to hate the Borg, we make you look him in the eye and ask if you could still kill him. You know, he he summed up so much there about what Star Trek does well and about the moral meaning message of this episode. Here's another thing that I love about it. So you and I have gone back and forth a lot about the conceit that everyone in the 24th century version of Star Trek is more perfect, that, well, they they don't have any prejudice and they make better decisions than their counterparts 100 years before this takes place. This, you know, I'll I'll repeat what I said uh, last segment. This is a great way to push those characters right up to the edge. I love Guinan confronting her own prejudice. I love Picard arguing with Guinan. 
I love that they make better decisions at the end of the day. Kirk would have winked and nodded about this. I think, you know, kind of rewriting this episode in my head with a different cast. You, you know, Kirk was the guy who beamed a million tribbles over to a Klingon ship mm-hmm. and said, oh, <laughs> let them clean it up. The end of this episode <laughs> is so deeply felt and sad and ambiguous, and it lends weight to the emotional reality of the characters in a way that, that we never did on the original series. This episode makes you think. It makes you feel. And that, that combination is when Star Trek is at its absolute best. So I think what I'm trying to say here is that it all works. <laughs> it all holds up. Yeah. As a production, absolutely. Um, and it's the kind of writing that I like. You know, we, we've had episodes where you could kind of say, well, maybe the acting wasn't as strong here. Or maybe the acting is all right, but the writing meandered. It wasn't as strong. This everything is firing on all cylinders. Yeah. Um, got anything to add to that? Um, there is literally, I think, nothing wrong with this episode. I, can't, I mean, I can't think of a single thing that is wrong with this episode. Um, you're right. It is the corporate maneuver again. This is now, I would say, this is probably in my top three so far. I mean, for the rewatch. And we're only, what, 214 episodes in? So yeah, I can't right. say for certain. Yeah. But, you know, 214 episodes in, the, yes, I would. now I would say, if you want to give people an idea of what Star Trek is at its best, uh, you watch the corporate maneuver. And and now I would say you watch I Borg. You might have yeah. to go ahead and watch uh, their introduction in season two, just so have, people have an idea. And you might actually have to. I mean, maybe you can't make this the first episode. Mm-hmm. Maybe you can though, because I mean, they do such an impassioned argument about. Look, this is why we're doing this. These guys are evil, and we know these guys are evil, and we know they're just going to destroy us, and they won't even think twice about it. I mean, so maybe you could show it by itself, but it's just it's just an absolutely amazing episode. Um, I will say what happens with Hugh reminds me of the end of Mirror, Mirror. Um, I think that was the one, right? That's the one with yeah. the alternate universe with the, with yeah, the savage people. Yeah. Like, well, savage, I say savage. With the different sort of <laughs> like angrier, sort of more violent, uh, can't be a society, can't be a culture because it's all too violent thing that we talked about. Um, right. They're introducing an idea just as, as, as Kirk introduced an idea to the alt universe Spock. Um, maybe the idea will blossom into something more, maybe not. Uh, at this point in our watching, uh, we don't know. Um, yeah, production-wise, uh, this episode, I would say, is absolutely phenomenal. As you say, it's it's. we've seen Patrick Stewart yell before. We've seen Patrick Stewart be impassioned before. And yet still, I was just, I was stunned when Guinan is there in his quarters and he interrupts her. When she says, when you see, if, you, if you're going to use this person and, and, and just, I mean, he erupts mm-hmm. and I mean, his, his acting is incredible. I'd say the only person, I mean, there are characters who didn't get to do anything in this episode, but you know, everybody's got to take a backseat at some point. It, it's, it's just, wow. Yeah. This episode's just amazing. I think, um, sadly not a message in it. <laughs> <clears throat> Well, yeah, I'll I'll do my best to try to find one or two here. You think you can, really? You think you can, really? <laughs> I, 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 bear with me. Yeah. Um, I can't remember which episode I had mentioned this before, but I immediately thought of this uh, again. And that was a, a video posted not too long ago on the Internet. And, of course, when I say the Internet, I mean everywhere. And it was a former CIA operative named Amaryllis Fox. So you can search for her name. 
And she was saying the most important thing that she learned in her time with the CIA was this this unfortunate thing that seems to be on the rise, which is the reduction of what each side stands for when it comes to a conflict. You know, what what does one country think of another country? What does one group of people think of another country? And it keeps getting reduced and reduced and minimized into saying, well, they hate us for this reason, and we hate them for this reason. And she said it's becoming more simplified than ever. But the key to unraveling all of this, uh, the, the lesson she learned was we have to listen to our enemies. Picard is so unwilling to listen to his enemy here. Mm-hmm. It, it takes multiple times for people to say, you really have to go talk to this guy. You really have to find out what's going on here. And he even says to Guinan, I, I didn't see the need to do it. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's nice to see him actually confront Partly it's his blind spot, partly it's his fear with, with you know, what he's been through. Again, we, we, we have a certain level of sympathy and understanding for Picard because we know what he's been through with the Borg. But he still has to face it. He still, even at that point, has to listen to his enemy to find out what's going on there. It may also not be, though, his own fear. It may Well, I mean, his fear may be once he sees the guy as a guy, then he's not going to be able to do what he wants to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. both what he wants to do and what he needs to do, he thinks at the time, is destroy the Borg. And if he actually looks at, you know, third of five as Hugh, that's going to make it harder to do what he's doing. But, of course, once he actually does, then he becomes better for it. I think there's another lesson that I picked up here, another message, moral meaning, which is that, you know, we could be so sure of our perspective that we don't take time to even consider the alternatives. Mm -hmm. Picard is completely inflexible in his convictions. And, And you know what? To Picard's credit, he is right more often than not. He is absolutely the shining example in this show of somebody who is making smart decisions, logical decisions, compassionate decisions. But again, we got to push him to a point where he couldn't break out of his way of thinking. And um, that's a really unfortunate place to be. It it certainly could have been destructive in his his way of thinking. Um, He says that line, you know, we'd be no better than our enemy that we seek to destroy when he finally realizes what it is that he's doing. That's what Picard two or three years ago would have said to somebody who had a plan that involved genocide, mm-hmm. you know, but, but again, this is a different Picard. This is a Picard who has a personal stake in what's going on. So, you know what? There are alternatives and the ends do not justify the means in this case. So there's, there's another, uh, example to throw out another moral meaning or message i feel like there's a lot here i mean that's just a, a handful but what else have we got yeah well i mean there was i mean it's interesting actually because that was a very a very pivotal line uh, to use him in this manner we'd be no better than the enemy we seek to destroy um that's not usually our bar mm-hmm. <laughs> But I mean, I, but I, I like I like the fact that at the very least we're not going to be on their level or lower. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I guess inherent in that statement is we do want to be better, um, but I don't think it's about wanting to be better just so you can be better. I think it's still about wanting to you know live up to whatever ideals you've got. I mean, there's a 
what probably made this episode easier to write was that we weren't as aware of the kind of threats out there as we are today, which is not to say we hadn't had enemies. Sure. Right. Sure. I mean, yeah, we, we were yeah, we had had the greatest generation. Gene Roddenberry came out of the greatest generation. They, we we had fought the Nazis. We had fought uh, Japan during World War II. I mean, we, we 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 had in our history, you know, implacable foes or seemingly implacable foes. But this episode aired in May of 1992, um, and again, we'd had stuff in our past. But the World Trade Center was bombed in 1993, so we're still a, we're a little bit less than a year out from that. And I'm talking about the bomb in the basement of the World Trade Center in '93. So Al Qaeda was actually a thing, but it wasn't a thing that most of us were aware of at the time. Um, we were three years away, I think, from the Oklahoma City bombing. Uh, we were nine years away from 9/11. Um, we were however many years it was just this year with the Paris attacks or last year, I suppose, with the Paris attacks as we record this and the attacks in Nice, uh, the San Bernardino shooting, the Pulse nightclub and tons of other things that I know I'm forgetting about because they just happen so often now. And they're presented to us as there is an enemy, even if it's not necessarily an enemy that's doing all this stuff. It's presented now as, you know, there's an enemy. Um, 92, we weren't even worried about Russia anymore. You know, yeah. I mean, we were in we were in. We probably didn't realize it at the time, but we're actually in kind of an okay place, um, at least, you know, as far as the average person walking around geopolitically thinking, yeah, I, we're kind of doing okay. So it must have been kind of easy in a way to say this is how we should act when we meet people who are opposed to us. This is how the opposition should be treated. Um, this is how we should be. And what's difficult about watching it today is all of those things I just talked about are there, and we're constantly being told there. I mean that the that you know the brigands are at the gates, that the, that the wolf is at the door. When officials now justify torture, when officials now justify detaining people without due process for 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 over a decade, when people in power or seeking power paint opposing people not as people but as faceless beasts. Um, it's not humanity at its best. And if you can only be your best when it's easy to do, uh, then it's hard to argue that you're actually your best at that point. You're, you're just doing what's easy. And that's, I mean, I think this episode is, is almost more heartbreaking. I mean, I, I, I kind of wanted to cry, honestly, a couple of times in this episode. Yeah. No, it, it, me too. Yeah, because, I mean, so much of what's being said here is not being practiced today. And I understand. I get it. I get why it's not being. But if we give up those things when it's difficult, then they don't matter when it's easy. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. You can find out more at roddenberry.com. For more exciting Star Trek podcasts, check out Trek FM. That's trek.fm. And for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. Next week, the next phase. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. Do 
do we need to talk about the fact that all of Jordi's closest relationships are with artificial or augmented intelligences? Also, I wonder if he would be my friend. End transmission.